You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. This particular one came to our attention via some spam messaging. That's Richard Hummel. He's the threat intelligence manager for Arbor Network's ACERT team. The research we're discussing today is titled, Inaput Actors Utilize Remote Access Trojan Since 2016, Presumably Targeting Victim Files. We were able to look at some of the metadata and look at the actual payloads attached. Um, and from there, it kind of led us to what we call the Inaput rat. So everything here is spawned from the phishing emails. And, you know, typically... Phishing emails are a dime a dozen. So what brought us our attention to this and made us focus on it was the themes. Some of the uh, senders were masquerading as what appeared to be political entities. Hmm. And it appeared they were targeting commercial uh, aspects just based on the theme of the message, the subject lines, the body of the messaging, um, and then who it's actually targeting. So we didn't capture all of the phishing messages them- themselves. Um, but we were able to retrieve the content, um, which led us to kind of the path that we were walking here. Well, let's start with those phishing messages. Uh, what was the content uh, that uh, got the people hooked? One thing I would just kind of call out as anecdotal um, initially and a, a caveat is we don't typically look into victim environments. Um, we observe a lot of things from a network perspective. Um, and if you look into our Atlas data set, it's, it's primarily just network-based data. Um, so I can't confirm that any victims actually were compromised by this. I see. Um, so we're, we're looking at the outside, right? We know that it was sent to X victims, um, but we don't know uh, the follow-through. I see. Um, so yeah, so I can't. I can really go into like you know what made them click on it, but essentially the, the phishing emails themselves come at a time where there's a lot of political upheaval 
various different uh, geopolitical discussions and disagreements going on. And then when you're targeting commercial manufacturing, um, a lot of players are in different countries, right? So they have they have awareness of what's happening in the geopolitical space. Um, so it's definitely something that comes at an opportune time for attackers um, to then go ahead and, and manipulate would-be victims um, by using those themes. So let's dig in some and talk about this uh, input rat element of this. Um, describe to us what's going on here. Uh, sure. So when we first came across this, uh, like I said, we started with the phishing messages. Um, and then from there, we were ba- basically able to look at the uh, command and control infrastructure. Um, from there, we found our initial payload, uh, which was directly tied to the phishing email. Um, we started looking at it, uh, analyzing it. Uh, one of our reverse engineers uh, ripped it apart, figured out exactly what it did. Uh, it's fairly trivial as far as a rat goes. There's a lot of rats out there that have a, a whole lot of functionality. This one's not necessarily full function. Um, it's pretty basic in what it does. It's able to profile the system that it's on and then uh, able to exfiltrate data. Now, there's no additional components to it, right? So how an attacker is using it, we don't know. Again, we don't sit in that victim environment. Um, we suspect, though, that the rat is used as kind of a backdoor. Um, and then once the attacker has compromised victims, they're then able to use that rat to exfiltrate data that they manually find on those systems. Uh, but again, that's speculation at this point since we don't actually see inside that environment. So the rat itself could be a first step in compromising a system. It's definitely part of that. Um, we also saw later versions of it being distributed with Godzilla Loader, which is a fairly common uh, cybercriminal tool that you can purchase in underground forms. Um, and that's basically the stager, right? So phishing email is kind of ground zero. Um, that's not to say they don't use other methods to get on the network, but phishing emails is definitely the one that we observed. Um, then we saw the input rat that was distributed directly, um, but then later on we saw the Godzilla loader as kind of the intermediary. So maybe they didn't have enough success distributing input rat directly, and so they then use Godzilla loader because it's it's a paid for service. Um, they're fairly good about getting around security and things like that in victim environments for successful infections. And what what are some of the details? What, what do we need to know about Godzilla Loader itself? Um, so we didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, analyzing Godzilla Loader just because there's a plethora of sites out there and other security researchers that have done ample mm. research dissecting Godzilla Loader. Gotcha. I guess the main things to, to note is that they are using it, right? So um, any number of research blogs out there could go through the details of stripping Godzilla Loader apart. Um, the important thing to know here, and I think kind of lending to attribution a little bit is it's a cyber criminal tool purchased in underground form. Um, that's not to say that APT type actors don't use it. Um, we have seen more of that, um, but it is cyber criminal world. So it could lend credence to the fact that these guys are organized crime. Um, they could be just criminals uh, moonlighting. Um, we, we don't really necessarily know who they are, but the fact that they're finding Godzilla loader and that it's typically purchased in underground forms is, is of note. So uh, one of the things you noted in your research was this evolution of input rat and how that uh, allowed you to, to sort of re- rewind the clock and see how far back this might, might have gone. Um, can you take us through that evolution and, and how the functionality changed over time? The changes themselves aren't super important, right? It doesn't really change the functionality and the capabilities of the rat itself. Hmm. Uh, what we noticed over time is evolution of how they're distributing the bot. Um, as well as how it gets installed. Um, so going chronologically, we could start with sample one, which goes all the way back to 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, the third sample that we have listed in our chronological order here is the one that we first started with. 
Um, so we started doing binary analysis. Uh, we did a bunch of different searches using a bunch of different tools. We have our internal malware sandboxing system. Uh, we have millions of samples that are uh, categorized and stored. Um, we also have some partnerships with other vendors that have sample sources. So we were able to basically do some searching. Um, we created some ER signatures looking for particular aspects of it. We looked at the actual command and control looking for additional samples. Um, and through the, the course of analyzing all of the different binaries, we found a couple of different ones. Um, and then we found even more looking at the actual infrastructure itself. Um, so we found a total of five binaries, um, at least the ones that we analyzed. Mm -hmm. the, I think we have hundreds of them at this point. Um, but the ones that we pulled out were ones that had differences or we're tied together through the infrastructure, which is kind of why we have five samples listed here. So starting with the first one, um, I think the most notable difference between sample one and sample two is that they changed the uh, different the order of the commands that they use. So the command options are basically API calls in a Windows environment that it's using to perform various functions, right? Mm -hmm. So here we, we see it reading files, it can write files, it can delete files, um, and basically do some system scanning. Um, the way that they call this particular API, the read file, change from the first sample to the second sample. So that's that's one change. Um, the other thing is the infrastructure itself has an overlap. Um, and then when we actually go and we match these binaries together, um, there's a bunch of different functions in a, in a particular binary. Um, and so the more matches you have, the more likely it is. It's the same compiled code. Although typically when you have a new variant, there's going to be functions that stand out as different. Um, that's that's pretty atypical when you're uh, analyzing samples over time. That read call is the main thing that changed. And then also the persistence method. So the first sample would create a Windows service. That was kind of how it in installed its persistence. It was called Office Update Service. Um, and that's fairly common for a lot of different binaries. Uh, that is the second most common. The first most common would be creating a, a Windows registry key to auto run upon booting your system up. And that's the change that happened between the first sample and the second sample. So sample one, we have a, a Windows service that's created. And then sample two, it actually creates a uh, persistence key in the Windows registry to run upon system boot up. Moving into sample three, not a whole lot changed from one to the other. The biggest change here was going to be the, the actual file name. So we went from something called safeapp.exe to neutralapp.exe. The whole command options uh, was persistent from sample two to sample three. We didn't do any diff matching uh, like diaphor or diff differential matching with this sample because this was our ground zero sample. Um, but it does match a lot of the other, other ones as well. Um, so then moving on to sample four, um, we can look at, uh, again, some of the same command and control infrastructure overlap. Uh, persistence with the naming of the sample, neutralapp.exe as well. Um, and then you can see that we matched 33 of the particular functions with 13 unmatched. Um, in this particular sample, sample four, is when they started doing a little bit of anti-analysis. Um, so some of the API names, the various strings within the binary are obfuscated. Now, they're not using a, a super sophisticated method for this. They're just using a simple XOR with an eight byte key. It's fairly simplistic, but it's enough to get around some of the different uh, pattern matching uh, signatures that we might have. For instance, if we were looking for a particular string or a particular function call using Yara, and we were just looking at regular ASCII text, if they did this obfuscation with XOR, we're not gonna see that unless we know that key, and then we can basically decode those before we do our pattern matching. Hmm. Um, and then in sample five, we basically, the, the biggest change here is that more of those strings and more of those API calls were obfuscated. Um, and you'll note that the matching function 
um, diminishes slightly. So we have 27 unmatched as opposed to the 13. Um, and that's just because they're adding that additional obfuscation. So things aren't going to match uh, one for one. Yeah. And so when you look at how it changed over time, is there a story there, you know, behind the scenes of what their goals were, what they were trying to do? Was it, I mean, it seems to me like the obfuscation is is the main uh, thread through this. Is is that accurate? Yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest change. Um, the biggest change that's really going to impact the rat itself. Um, the changes of the various read calls, the change of the persistence mechanism, those aren't really going to change a whole lot. I mean, those both of those are fairly common as far as persistence mechanisms, and they're both really common places for security applications and tools to look for uh, malicious apps. Um, so that's not really going to impact the bot itself. It's not going to really impact their viability to stay on a system. The obfuscation, though, is what's going to enable them to get around a particular uh, set of scanning rules. Um, so that's probably going to be the biggest change that occurred between the variations. And honestly, if you look at the actual evolution, it's fairly trivial. I mean, they're, they're minor increments of code updates. It could just be that over time they figure new ways to do things or, hey, why aren't we obfuscating? Let's go ahead and add that in. Um, so I don't think it's like super significant and they're not using a very complex algorithm, but it is sufficient to deny pattern matching for certain things. And so what's your perception of the sophistication of these actors? Um, and I guess second part of that would be for the type of information they're looking for, um, is sophistication necessary? I wouldn't say that they're highly sophisticated. I mean, when you compare them against other threats, it, it seems like more the run-of-the-mill stuff to me. And is it necessary? I don't know. Um, when we look at a lot of uh, potential APT actors, for instance, um, a lot of times they don't necessarily care about stealth, right? They want to get into the system. They are going to exfiltrate as much as they can, and they, they're going to get out. Um, a lot of the tools they use, Poison Ivy and JRAT, they're very noisy, right? So it's not like they're trying to evade stuff, but if they accomplish their goal of exfiltrating certain data... Uh, mission accomplished, right? So I don't think they have to be highly sophisticated. Um, it could be a highly sophisticated actor using primitive tools to do something like this. Maybe they're doing it uh, moonlighting or, or a side project or something like that. They did go to the effort of using Godzilla Loader, which means they did drop some funds in order to acquire uh, the use of that software. Um, so there is some aspect here where they're paying to increase their sophistication slightly or increase their success rate. But I, I don't necessarily think that these guys are super highly sophisticated uh, in that sense. So let's talk about the attribution. Take us through uh, what, what your conclusions are. Just kind of based anecdotally here and a caveat before we go into this, we're basing this largely on information presented to us and available online, right? Any actor anywhere could basically masquerade this data. They could create fake entries. They could create fake email addresses. So um, take kind of what we've written here as a grain of salt. Um, we, we've, you know, appropriately caveated that, hey, we believe this based on what we've found. But that's uh, saying, you know, an, att an at attacker could go in and create all these personas. They could create these fake Twitter accounts, these fake Facebook accounts, um, all to make them look more legitimate. So that said, we can dive into this. Basically, what we first looked at is the initial infrastructure and that phishing message. Um, from there, it led us to Interput Rat. And then we started looking at who registered them, looking at their email addresses, the phone numbers within various who is information. Um, and then we started doing some chain analysis. So uh, whether, whatever graphing tool you might be used to, is it Analyst Notebook or Maltigo or something like that, we started plotting these various entities out. Um, highlighting their names, their addresses, their phone numbers, their email addresses, and then from there pivoting to addi additional infrastructure that they might have registered. Um, and that led us to additional samples of input rat. 
Um, and so through basically a series of looking at different domains, looking at the IP addresses and the hosting, uh, as well as the registrar data, we were able to basically find uh, these five different samples, as well as a bunch of different infrastructure that matches our original phishing, phishing message uh, theme, like the MFA events. Um, we saw U.S. Embassy report. Um, so these same themes are things that we identified. Uh, on top of that, we had some more generic stuff like Google and Microsoft. Um, so some of the different campaigns and themes that I've seen over the years working these types of threats, um, a lot of times you'll have actors that zero in or home in on a specific AO that they're really interested in. But oftentimes you also have them do more generic stuff. So a lot of the crime actors, they kind of they shoot shotgun uh, shots out, right? They want to hit wide. They don't necessarily care about necessarily sp specific entities, but sometimes they will drill down a little bit further if they're look. Maybe they're uh, contracted out by somebody, or they have a, a, a particular interest in a certain financial organization. Then they might single them out to go a little bit further. But a lot of times they like to try to go wide, get as many people compromised as possible, because they're going to get a better return of their investment and their time. Um, so we'll often, even though we might see some targeted activity, we'll also see the stuff that kind of targets wide with Google, the Microsoft, uh, various webmail providers, and things like that. Through the course of all of our investigation uh, and tying all of this together, we came across three particular uh, entities. And again, they could be made up. We don't know. Um, but based off of what we were able to see, they all have a, a kind of a Russian flavor to them. Whether that's APT or crime, we at this point, we don't know. Um, we basically just prevented the facts of our findings um, and then highlighted the differences and what led us to believe that it might be a Russian-type nexus. Is this still an active campaign? And uh, and if so, how can folks protect themselves against it? Yeah, so uh, as of yesterday, I was just talking to the researchers that are, are primarily responsible for this, and we were still seeing some of the activity. The command and control infrastructure for at least one of them is still live. Um, we've been looking at uh, contacting various ISPs to see what we can do to try to help uh, eliminate some of this malicious activity. But right now, the biggest thing that you can do really is, is practice good hygiene, right? Don't open emails from untrusted senders. If something looks a little bit suspicious, forward it to your support desk and ask them for guidance. A lot of these threats, I'd say that probably the number one threat impacting organizations going back uh, how many years, I don't know at this point, um, is email. Attackers like to include malicious attachments. They'll include links. Um, the link might appear to be benign, but the actual hyperlink text itself is leading you to a malicious site. Uh, so really just uh, practice a little bit of caution. Uh, when, you're, when you're opening up an email, ensure it's from somebody you trust. If you're uncertain, reach out to them separately. Ask them, hey, did you send this to me? When you are opening things, uh, just ensure you're not actually executing a binary. If you open up a document and it has macros or some type of script content inside, don't enable that without getting a verification of where that came from. Um, so there's a lot of just general use practices that can be done to help eliminate this threat. Uh, one of the things that we do here is all of the indicators of compromise that we see, as well as signatures for the particular activity, we include those into our system so that uh, when, when we're blocking the activity, whether it's via our Atlas intelligence feed or one of our systems like APS, we're pushing all of these IOCs and um, what we call policy or a signature to our systems so that we can then block the malicious activity. 
Our thanks to Richard Hummel from Arbor Network's ACERT team for joining us. The research is titled, Inaput Actors Utilize Remote Access Trojans Since 2016, Presumably Targeting Victim Files. You can find it in the blog section of the Arbor Network's website. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. The Cyberwire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.